HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Welcome to Straight No Chaser on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We are broadcasting live from the studios of Roberta's in Bushwick, where brunch is being served at 261 Moore Street. Um, my guest today is the eminent attorney, Bill Marler, from Marler Clark, Clark Law Firm. Um, Bill is a um, primary uh, rock star in food litigation. I don't know what else to say. Um, <laughs> I, have a, I have a whole bio. I'm going to read that. And then, and then Bill, you will be uh, grilled accordingly. Bill Marler is the managing partner of the law firm Marler and & Clark and, nationally, and a nationally recognized expert in food safety. Mr. Marler began representing victims of, the foodborne, of foodborne illness in 1993 when he... Um, represented the most seriously injured survivor of the jack-in-the-box E. coli 0157H7 outbreak. And since then, he has represented thousands of victims of foodborne illness, including Stephanie Smith, the subject of the Pulitzer Prize-winning story in the New York Times magazine about E. coli contamination. Mr. Marler's advocacy for a safer food supply includes petitioning the United States Department of Agriculture to better, better regulate pathogenic E. coli, working with nonprofit food safety and foodborne illness victims organizations, and helping to spur the passage of the 2010-2011 FDA Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, so, Bill, you have quite the... Um, CV there. How did you get into the whole foodborne illness thing? Was that what you expected to do when you hopped out of law school, or did it just kind of fall in your lap and interest you? Well, it was. Uh, I had planned to uh, be a trial lawyer and was doing doing that kind of work when uh, the Jack in the Box case happened here in the unit in uh, the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Seattle was really the epicenter of that outbreak. It was in you know in. January of 1993, 
you know, Seattle was really a war zone. Um, they were flying in dialysis machines from other cities because there were so many kids in need of dialysis that right. Seattle didn't have enough equipment. It was, you know, it was un- incredible. How many people were affected by that um, outbreak? <clears throat> there were a total of 600 people sickened. Um, four children died. Yikes. Uh, about 50 kids developed uh, a syndrome called hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is acute mm-hmm. kidney failure. Right. Um, it was, you know, it was a really horrible experience, you know, for everyone. And it was really, um, you know, the first time that a foodborne illness outbreak um, sort of caught the attention of, you know, of the public. Well, it was heavily reported in the media, and I guess par- partly because Jack in the Box was such a big deal at that point in the mm-hmm. fast food industry, um, and I think partly because kids were uh, so adversely affected. I don't think that had been reported so much in the past. Um, by the way, that HUS syndrome that you just described was also a, a big feature of the E. coli outbreak in Germany from sprouts this year, um, right. and in a, in a new and, and apparently more virulent strain or something. I mean, somehow that whole... That sort of eclipsed the Jack in the Box case in a little bit, didn't it? Oh, by, by, you know, by, <laughs> by an order multiple. of magnitude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. E. coli, you know, the E. coli 0157H7, which was the type of bug that uh, hit uh, on the Jack in the Box case, has a lot of nasty uh, cousins. Right. Uh, some are emerging pathogens. Some have probably been around, but we haven't been able to have the technology to detect it. Um, and you know we are seeing a uh, an increase um, in what we call non o one five seven shigatoxin producing e coli um, and the german outbreak was was one of those right um in the current news we 're going to go back to that whole sort of emerging pathogen business and and a few other uh, related matters but right now um, i 've seen a lot of uh, media coverage in the Huffington Post and elsewhere about arsenic and apple juice and since you 're the man, um, tell us what that 's all about and how much should people be worried, especially about their kids Well, one of the things that 's happened over time is there's i think there's there's sort of two converging problems one is uh, and being here in the state of Washington, I have a lot of experience with apples because yeah, it, used, it used to be where all the apples were grown. But over time, that's not been the case. And, uh, um, you know, we are getting more and more of our cheap uh, apple juice uh, from imports. And in part, uh, either because of organic or inorganic uh, arsenic, and uh, inorganic is much problematic that really comes from pesticides. Uh, we're starting to see that um, Food and Water Watch and mm-hmm. the Consumer Reports have done some you know, really good research on uh, what they're finding in imported apple juice. Um, and arsenic is a known carcinogen. Yeah. Um, the FDA uh, says it's presently in levels that are not to be overly concerned about, but I noticed in the last week that Mike Taylor um, is starting to ease on that, and I think that's a good sign. Um, ease in the sense that he's saying that actually this isn't so great and this, these are potentially dangerous <clears throat> yeah, levels? Yeah, I think or? they're going to start, um, you know, really looking at, you know, whether it's organic or inorganic arsenic and, frankly, whether or not they need to spend more time paying attention to how much is in it. Um, you know, of course, I have a firm belief that... Um, you know, we need to produce our own food, but, um, and, you know, making apple juice here 
um, might be slightly more expensive, but you know, if I had little kids, I'd be much more you know interested in you know getting apple juice from the U.S. Absolutely. Um, well, how can we protect ourselves from products that are coming in from overseas that might be contaminated? I mean, it seems like over and over again, you read, you know, the pine nuts from Turkey and, uh, you know, the apple juice and milk products. And I mean, all of this stuff that's coming in from overseas, isn't anybody minding the store? Well, there's, I think there's a couple things. One is, uh, and I say that this is probably counterintuitive, but, um, you know, in 20 years of handling you know, nearly every foodborne illness outbreak that's occurred, you know, the vast majority of um, the foodborne illness outbreaks have been caused by products grown in the United States. Uh-huh. So, Interesting. You know, imports are <clears throat> are an issue, and they're a growing issue. Uh, um, you know, we have this tendency <clears throat> to sort of chase the cheapest product, yeah. um, and, you know, that has, you know, potentially negative implications. Um, you know, the FDA... Um, now has uh, stations in many of our trading partners' countries, which is a really unique thing that we have inspectors overseas in those countries. But, you know, they're grossly, you know, understaffed and underfunded, um, you know, especially in China. Right. Well, yeah. Um, But they, I mean, those other countries have their inspectors here. I mean, we're always getting knocked off of the, you know, the meat wagon, as it were, um, by other countries that, you know, decide that they're going to ban our product because, you know, such and such a plant hasn't come up to their safety standards or whatever. Um, So it's it's obviously a two-way street on that that score. And I'm glad to hear that we've actually uh, started to step up and put people into place where they should be. Um, There are major cuts on the food, on food safety programs uh, that are being um, contemplated by by Congress right now, um, what's going to happen if, if some of those cuts to the FDA budget or the USDA budget uh, go into place? Will we lose inspectors like that and, and other peer personnel involved in food safety? Um, whether we lose them overseas, I think, is, I think they will probably hold our own there, primarily mm-hmm. because um, even though it's, you know, less of a risk, um, overseas, perhaps, than it is, you know, on our own turf. Um, it's easier to justify um, having inspectors overseas than they are at home. Um, and, again, that's primarily because I think people are more concerned about imports. Um, the, the biggest problem is that there are many things in the Food Safety Modernization Act that are mandatory, where the you know the law is requiring the FDA to do things, but at the same time you're not adding to the you know the employment base at FDA, and um, it's just you know you're going to stretch this you know the agency thinner and thinner and thinner, and they're just going to frankly not be able to do the job that they intended you know to do. Right. Um, I'm going to take like a ten, literally a 10 second break here to kind of pull sure. myself together <laughs> and let okay. other people pull themselves together. And uh, we'll come right back with Bill Marler, um, the attorney who is behind much of the Food Safety Modernization Act and much of the uh, you know coverage about food safety in this country.
Okay, we're on uh, Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the phone with me is Bill Marler of the Marler Clark Law Firm, a law firm that has been responsible for prosecuting some of the major foodborne illness outbreak cases in the United States. Bill, thanks so much again for joining us. Um, This is our second segment, and I want to talk all about meat, because actually that's my favorite subject. So um, we were uh, mentioning earlier, uh, you know, the strains that are coming up in in E. coli and... and, um, the American Meat Institute is is having a hissy fit about the idea of <laughs> of implementing what they call the big six. Inspe- I should say inspecting for what they call the big six, which are E. coli 0157H7 plus those other five um, strains that are more more increasingly um, behind foodborne illness outbreaks. So, what's going to happen? Are they saying are they are they right in saying that that these inspections are just going to cost them more money and not going to uh, shut the stats down any in any greater degree than they already are or are they just basically protecting themselves as usual well, let, let, i think let's put this in, a little bit in context okay um you know the uh, in 1994 after the jack-in-the-box e coli outbreak um uh, a familiar name mike taylor who at instead of being at fda was at fsis so the mm-hmm. usda arm um he uh, with the nod of president clinton declared E. coli 0157H7 as adulterant. Right. And that dramatically changed the landscape of uh, meat safety in this country. It took some time for it to work through the system, but the numbers of ill people linked to E. coli 0157 have fallen off dramatically. Um, the industry didn't like it. They sued. They you know, screamed and yelled. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, it has worked and has worked well and has saved them hundreds of millions of dollars over time. I would think so. I mean, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to inspect for everything you could (laughs) in order to avoid these disastrous lawsuits. Well, you know, part of it is that, you know, when an organization like the American Meat Institute is created, they have to continue to justify their existence. And if they didn't fight things, um, they wouldn't seem to be relevant to their members. I see. Um, and I think sometimes they just fight for fighting's sake. Um, and so you come to, you know, the, this, you know in this decade, um, and um, Elizabeth Hagen, who's now head of FSIS, mm-hmm. when she was sort of further down the food chain, saw that E. coli non-0157, other shigatoxin-producing E. coli's, were eclipsing 0157 is uh, by like a factor of two uh, as the number of people getting sick in this country. So we know that there are about 75,000 people getting sick from E. coli 0157. And that has held steady for about two decades, even though our population increases. So we actually have done better there. But at the same time, these other E. coli's, the big six, have gotten to be about 125,000 people are sick every year. So Hagen went to her boss, which was a guy in the Bush administration, Dick Raymond, and said, you know, we need to do something. And that was the start of, you know, the work towards a, uh, an adulterant label for these other bacteria. Um, I petitioned FSIS in October of 2009 and, um, just in the last uh, few months, they agreed with the petition, and they're going to start uh, 
requiring that these bugs be adulterants and start being tested in March. I think the AMI is just doing what it does and, mm -hmm. you know, just causing, you know, some consternation. But it's not going to be, you know, ex inexpensive for the industry to do it. That's just part of, you know, food safety is not an inexpensive thing to do. But in the long run, it's going to be helpful to the American public and ultimately helpful to the bottom line of the meat industry. I would think so. Um, speaking of uh, the expense of implementing these inspection processes or additional inspection processes, um, companies like Cargill or Tyson or National Beef, um, they can afford to put all of these um, you know, measures into place because they have so much, uh, you know, they just have sure. so much money. But if you're a smaller plant, how do you manage? I mean, are they going to, um, will the FDA give them a pass on some of these inspection measures? Or are they going to, are more small plants going to go out of business because of this? What's the impact going to be on the on the smaller part of the food chain? Well, I, I certainly hope two things. One is I hope that the USDA doesn't cut uh, small plants slack when it comes to food safety. And secondly, I don't think they need it. Um, um, and the, you know, the what is going to be required is nothing more than what is being required now, except for additional testing. And you know, whether you're a small plant or a large plant, um, the testing protocols are relatively the same, and they're relatively inexpensive. Mm -hmm. And if you find a pathogenic bacteria in your facility. Um, you'll want to not sell that product, and whether you're a small facility or a large facility. Yeah. And, you know, the reality, too, is, is that the smaller the facility doesn't mean that it doesn't have uh, any risk of foodborne pathogens getting in their product, but the smaller the facility, the fewer cows that are being you know, ground up to put in a hamburger, the less likely it is that that product is going to be contaminated. You know, the more, you know, cows you put into a pound of hamburger, <clears throat> the greater the likelihood is that, you know, one of them has got a problem. Yep. And that's just, a, you know, a function of, you know, the manufacturing process. So I'm less concerned about small manufacturers because I, I think, you know, they can, they can, you know, differentiate themselves by the big players by a testing aggressively, and you know, frankly, most consumers would pay the you know couple pennies more a pound if they knew that their product was a local, b small, and c tested regularly. Yeah, I certainly would. Well, let's, um, Carlos. I'm going to take like another 10 second break here. Um, we'll be okay. back right back with Bill Marler of Marler Clark Attorney uh, Law Firm in Seattle, Washington. This is Straight No Chaser, and um, we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. My guest on the phone is Bill Marler of the Marler Clark Law Firm, uh, one of the firms, or probably the premier firm that uh, litigates on food safety and foodborne illness cases. Bill, thanks so much again. Um, let's talk about subtherapeutic antibiotic use. There's really no end. Can I tell right now? There's no end to the topics. I mean, if I could keep you on here for the rest of the day, I would. And I really hope you'll come. Back. Let's do it. We'll do it again. I, 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 <coughs> yeah, I, because I'm traveling so much, you know, so I, I've been doing so many speeches to yeah. uh, companies all over the world, sort of trying to pitch on why it's a bad idea to poison your customers, but it's sometimes <laughs> hard to get to the landline. So. Yeah, well, we'll make it happen, and we don't have to do it on a Sunday. I could always <laughs> pre-record. But anyway, let's get right down to business with um, my favorite <clears throat> subject right now, which is sub therapeutic antibiotic use in livestock right. production. Um, I read, you know, all the trade blogs and right. uh, I am just stunned over and over again by the resistance in the industry to the idea of abandoning subtherapeutic antibiotic use. Um, but clearly it is becoming more and more of a health hazard to humans. So what's going to happen? Well, A, I agree with you. Um, you know, B, there's there are enormous competing, um, you know, agendas. Um, you know, some are, you know, understandable. Uh, some just perplex you. Um, I think the first thing is, is we uh, all have to agree that uh, sub-therapeutic usage of, you know, antibiotics in, you know, food animals is impacting human health because there are um, uh, antibiotic-resistant salmonellas, at least four. Yeah. Um, there's antibiotic-resistant Campylobacters, and there's a lot of research out there about um, other bugs like, you know, MRSA and others that, um, you know, still have not been necessarily linked to food, but there are certainly some, you know, issues surrounding them. Um, you know, we have um, inside of CDC uh, this group called NARMS, which uh, has been you know, working with physicians, you know, all over the United States, sort of trying to raise this issue. So I think the the science, you know, says we really need to pay attention to it and we really need to cut back the usage because, you know, antibiotics are important for human health, period. Um, then you have uh, veterinarians uh, who sort of look at animal health and they see the use of antibiotics, even sub-therapeutic usage of antibiotics, as something that is good for animal health. And you can understand where they're coming from when these animals live in confined areas and, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to keep animals healthy. Yep. Of course, then you have the, you know, the use of antibiotics. Not, they're not really growth enhancers, but they're health enhancers to allow the animals to be, to grow in those kinds of environments. And I and to grow just, faster. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things I think we fundamentally have to look at how we feed, you know, a pop, growing population, and both in the United States and abroad, where especially as countries become, you know, economically advantaged, um, you know, meat uh, consumption is skyrocketing. Yes. It's a very complex issue. But I think one of the things that, you know, has to be sort of put at the forefront is, you know, long-term human health um, and, 
you know, that to me uh, makes it you know, the thing that we have to start really doing, you know, in this decade. And, you know, driving down the use of therapeutic antibiotics is, you know, something that's going to have to happen. Um, and you, there, is, there is some slight movement afoot. Um, um, we've seen some positive uh, movement even by industry. Recently, uh, Cargill recalled uh, salmonella-tainted turkey, even though it was not linked to illnesses. Yeah, but it was tainted with salmonella Heidelberg, which is one of those absolutely antibiotic-resistant. The fact fact that they recalled it, the fact that they recalled it without illnesses, because technically they, you know, technically the government says that it's frankly perfectly fine to have antibiotic-resistant salmonella in your turkey or in your hamburger. Salmonella, um, antibiotic-resistant salmonella is not, strangely enough, an adulterant like E. coli 0157. Fascinating, because, I mean, you know, why one particular uh, strain... Oh, no, it's, microorganism it's is, is deemed well, an know, adulterant and another nonsense. is not. It's, yeah, it's completely nonsensical. Yeah. Um, and actually, if you then, uh, I'll give you an example. If you have salmonella, <clears throat> antibiotic-resistant salmonella in hamburger, it's perfectly fine to sell it to you. Mm. Uh, if you have salmonella uh, in lettuce, you can't sell it. It's, it's considered an adulterant. Well, but you're not going to cook the lettuce. And I think, I mean, what the meat papers right. always say in the meat trade blogs, they always blame the consumer. It's always, well, they didn't cook it to 165 degrees. They didn't right. cook it to 185 degrees. So it's always on the consumer. They didn't wash their cutting boards. They didn't wash their hands, whatever it is. Well, they, the, the, the industry the, is the bound to... The and the cantaloupe growers, it's always, you know, everybody wants, you know, sort of, I think it's some kind of bizarre human nature to want to blame everybody else for your problems. But the, the reality is, is that, um, and why E. coli 0157 is an adulterant, is that the government and, frankly, industry uh, understands that, you know, cooking hamburger is one of those things that consumers do, but handling it, how you put it in your grocery cart, how you handle it when it gets into your kitchen, um, you know, you, you really have to be, you know, a rocket scientist in many respects to handle you know, highly contaminated, antibiotic-resistant. You know, it just doesn't doesn't comport with reality. Oh, my God. I mean, it's just reading your food safety journal and the food poison journal. I mean, Bill, I'm like turning into a paranoid freak. I'll be eating nothing but GMO alfalfa before you know it. Well, you know, I I, I certainly, (laughs) I think there are, I think there are some, you know, common sense. There's common sense. And, you know, people ask me all the time, in fact, I was at a Christmas party last evening, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I bet you 10 people ask me, you know, what do you eat? What do you don't eat? Oh, my God, what about this? What about that? Oh, my, really? Uh, cantaloupe now? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of common sense things that consumers can do to protect themselves and their family and, and most importantly, use their pocketbook to help change corporate and, you know, food producer behavior. Ooh, well, you know, Bill, that is going to have to be an entire program in and of itself because... I'd love to come back for that. Oh, my God. Well, I, I hope you'll also want to come back to talk about raw milk. 
<laughs> and um, let's not forget about that. Will about, get a lot of that'll get a lot of interest, in, <laughs> especially uh, in the epicenter. Passionate, very passionate thing. Yeah, well, we're in the epicenter of hipsterdom here in Bushwick, yes. Brooklyn. So you can imagine yes. that raw milk is probably really popular. Not yes. with me. For me. Pasteurization came about for a very good reason. Um, I'm all for it, just as I am all for vaccinating your children against the basic childhood diseases. And I actually was reading today on your Food Safety Journal that more and more right. people are opting out of that. It's not the first place I've seen it, but um, right. it just blows my mind that, you know, it just right. shows how long it's been since we had any major outbreaks of things like polio or mumps or something like that where children were at risk or died. Um, you know, and these fools are just like, oh, it's not going to happen to me. Well, um, you know, you know, not to take the not to take their their argument, but you know, part of what what's going on is, and this is sort of my view, is that part of it is that um, consuming public doesn't trust the companies that are producing food right. and doesn't trust the government to protect them, and so they they tend to they tend to kind of keep moving further and further out on the edge to sort of protect themselves, and you know, there's a lot of opportunities for you know, misinformation, yes. uh, and I think that's what happens with vaccines and raw milk, and, and you know, I, people are trying to figure out how to protect themselves, and they don't feel like industry uh, and the government is there to help them, and I think that's a failing on the part of industry and the government to do the things that they need to do to, to make sure the public, you know, trust them. There's a, there's a lack of trust, and and that is as much of a problem, in my view, when it comes to consumers doing things that we think are a little bit, you know, unsafe and unhealthy. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a glorious point. I really appreciate that you made that. I think that's exactly spot on. And um, we can probably trace it right back to Watergate, which is where I think the distrust of government <laughs> really came from. No, really. I mean, that's Absolutely. when we started. Thinking, I, I'm old enough to know that. Right? right? Yeah. Well, you and I, I think, are more or less the same age. I'm probably older yeah. than you are. But anyway, um, so unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. Alas, alack. Um, I want you to name your favorite um, blogs that you write or that your company is responsible for, Food Safety Journal being one of them. Um, I subscribe to that. And then I just recently subscribed to Food Poison. What is it? Food Poison Journal? Yeah, my, my actually my favorite one, and it's only because, you know, I'm so egomaniacal, is uh, Marler Blog. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's, that's when <laughs> Thank I Thank you for saying health. that. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, you and my mother could be subscribers. Um, but actually, what's interesting Hewitt's is mom. My, my blog, Marler blog, has um, the American Bar Association and LexisNexis have um, both put it in their top uh, ten of uh, uh, law blogs, which, considering mm-hmm. that those entities are sort of more corporate-owned than not, it's, a, it's pretty much a nice little pat on my back to have them listed and I think it's actually making people pay more attention to you know this area of the law which I think is is really needed it's clearly a growing field yes, yes. <laughs> I hate to say it but fortunately we all have to eat and yeah. we all want to eat things that don't kill us right well I think that I mean the the localization of food and re-regionalization of food systems and so on will probably go a long way towards addressing mm-hmm. some of these issues but you and I will be talking about that on a future broadcast uh, for the meantime I want to thank you very very much you for bet. being my guest today um, 
folks, if you uh, you know tune in anytime, you can re- re- listen to the show on our archives or on our I- on load download it on iTunes. Sorry to be so incoherent. And Bill, we'll send you a link to the show afterwards. And okay, um, very I'll be much. talking you to you. I'll nice be talking day. to Suzanne tomorrow to book my next gig with you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks right. again, thank man. You so Take much. care. And thank you, Bye-bye. folks, for listening to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I wish I could tell you who my guest was going to be next week, but they bowed out. So I'm scrambling. But I swear, I promise, it'll be somebody really interesting, almost as good as Bill Marler. See you then. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is a message from Vegan Pop-Up Shop. Looking for the perfect holiday gift for that special vegan in your life? Come down to the Vegan Holiday Shop-Up Sunday, December 4th from 12 to 5 p.m. at the Pine Box Rock Shop in Bushwick. There you'll find a wide array of vegan-friendly treats, eats, fashions, and home goods. From soy wax candles to homemade hot sauce, the Vegan Holiday Shop-Up has your vegan present needs covered. So come down early and stay late and enjoy a spicy Bloody Mary while you're there, and maybe leave with something extra for yourself. following is a message from Jones Family Farms. Looking for that perfect Christmas tree this season? What about the perfect wine to go with your holiday dinner? Look no further than Jones Family Farm, a 400-acre working farm in Connecticut. Jones Family Farms is as passionate about education as it is about farming. Whether you're picking fresh strawberries or exploring local wines, we hope you're inspired to learn more about Connecticut farming. For more information, visit www.jonesfamilyfarms.com.